Hello and welcome to Poker Stories, a podcast brought to you by Card Player, the Poker Authority, and hosted by me, Julio Rodriguez. This is episode number 154 and features noted author, three-time bracelet winner, and all-around gambling expert David Sklansky. Let's get into it. Boys, we got a bleeder in aisle six, ladies and gentlemen. Stand on my pots. I'm drunk and I'm pissed. For the best the poker world has to offer, subscribe to Poker Go now. Your super high rollerball seven champion, Daniel Negranin. Oh, yeah. Wheels are coming off. That's the craziest hand I've ever seen. The World Series of Poker, high stakes poker, no gamble, no future, and so much more. What was that bite? Sign up at PokerGo.com using promo code CARDPLAYER to get $20 off the first year of an annual subscription now. Hi everyone, this is two-time World Poker Tour champion Jonathan Little, and I want to tell you about my training site, PokerCoaching.com. Poker Coaching is the place to be if you want to increase your poker skills and learn to crush the games. It's the only place to quickly increase your win rate with active learning, so you can achieve your full poker potential without having to hire an expensive coach. Right now, podcast listeners can score a free membership by visiting pokercoaching.com slash card player and get access to top training tools like our interactive hand quizzes, our seven, 14, and 30 day challenges, and a roster of elite coaches such as Matt Affleck, James Romero, Burke Draftganger Stevens, Michael Acevedo, and dozens of others. Again, that's pokercoaching.com slash card player to get your free membership right now. By now, you've heard about Global Poker, one of the fastest growing online card rooms available in the US and Canada today. So what's stopping you from trying it out? Global Poker is a safe and secure social poker site that uses their own patented sweepstakes model. Signing up is easy. You can use Google, Facebook, or just an email address. You can always play for free on Global Poker, but you can also buy gold coins for additional play, which will earn sweeps coins that can be redeemed for real cash to a bank account, Skrill account, or even as a gift card. Get a free 5,000 gold coins when you sign up right now at GlobalPoker.com. Poker Stories is an audio series that features casual interviews with some of the game's best players and personalities. Each episode highlights a well-known figure in the poker world and dives deep into their favorite tales, both on and off the felt. David Sklansky is perhaps the most prolific poker writer ever. Chances are, especially if you got started during the poker boom, you have read at least one of David's nearly 20 books on the subject. I know I did. When I was searching for my first poker strategy book, I was surprised to see that everyone's recommendation was to start with The Theory of Poker, a book written back in 1978. Incredibly, they were right, and the book remains relevant almost 50 years later. From there, I moved on to the other Sklanskys, including his work with uh, fellow poker authors Ed Miller, Mason Malmuth, Alan Schoonmaker, on titles such as uh, Small Stakes Hold'em, No Limit Hold'em Theory and Practice and Do You See Why? He's since written an updated version on the theory of poker, specifically applied to No Limit. And his latest book, which we talk about in this interview, is Small Stakes No Limit Hold'em, Help Them Give You Their Money, which is about deviating from GTO play 
to exploit player weaknesses and maximize profit. But David, who is also a three-time World Series of Poker bracelet winner, is knowledgeable about so much more than just poker. In fact, he had a business card that referred to him as the resident wizard back when he was working as Bob Stupak's right-hand man and casino games consultant. Speaking of Stupak and his casino, did you know that the Stratosphere Tower on the Las Vegas Strip only exists because of David Sklansky? That's right, David convinced him to build it, even though he didn't have the money. David also talked about the time he had to pay off a seven-figure bet when Stupak tried to run, to run for mayor of Las Vegas, a race that ended in some controversy. There was also the time David convinced the casino owner to challenge Donald Trump himself to a $1 million board game contest. Uh, this was a fascinating interview, and David is full of some amazing stories. Did you know he was barred from casinos for card counting? Did you know that he invented the game of Caribbean Stud? Did you know that some of his WSOP bracelets are actually watches? You'll hear all that and a lot more in this interview, which is brought to you by Resorts World and their beautiful 30-table poker room located right on the Las Vegas Strip. Visit rwlasvegas.com for more information. Anyway, that's enough intro. Here is my conversation with David Sklansky. I am here with the one and only David Sklansky. David, how you doing? Not bad. You're feeling good? You're 76? You just had a birthday? Are you feeling okay? I'm feeling a lot better than I, I did uh, uh, about a year ago where I had a, uh, a mental... A mental... A medical problem. For, uh, <laughs> for a medical sort. problem uh, <laughs> that is almost certainly was a misdiagnosis uh, and that it was most likely uh, something involving uh, what COVID throws off. I think I was, I was misdiagnosed with um, heart failure and oh. I was not doing well. But now I'm doing great and you don't get better from heart failure. So it almost certainly was COVID-induced um, myocarditis. Oh. And uh, for a while I was uh, in bad shape, but now I'm, I'd say I'm 90%. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Um, you know, you were in the book mentioning how Poker keeps you young, right? And how you had you had uh, you had seen that mentally for poker, you know, it could help keep away Alzheimer's, right? Well, I actually was trying to promote the idea that since they have discovered that Alzheimer's is staved off and improved by people doing things like playing crossword puzzles. And other games, it seemed like the um, internet poker games would be a great way to uh, give seniors who were worried about Alzheimer's uh, that kind of mental stimulation, especially because I know of no older poker player who has it. And I once asked Doyle Brunson whether he knew of anybody. And he said of all of his friends, he knew of one person. Now, I don't. I think a fairly high percentage of older people get Alzheimer's, and he knew one out of hundreds. And so I actually went to the Caesars Palace, um, the WSOP internet boss, and suggested that he had data. He could go to this, the World Series of Poker back 55 years or whatever, and 
check into all the people who played and see whether I was right that a much smaller percentage of those people get Alzheimer's. That would be and quite was, the ad, right? If you had a doctor in the TV ad, yeah, well, like, would, play poker for your health. He loved the idea. I forgot the fellow's name. He loved the idea. And as is uh, often happens, they some attorney said, no, you can't do it because <laughs> of, you'll get sued because somebody's going to play poker and get Alzheimer's and then they want to sue yeah. seizures for a million dollars, which was very disappointed. I still think that... Um, Internet sites should try to find out as much information as they can about their customers. Yeah. Especially now, the Internet has been around, Internet poker has been around for, what, 20 or 30 years? They could go back and, and try to see whether I'm right. Now, I'm not saying that poker is better than crossword puzzles, but it's more fun for me, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, imagine, I'm talking about playing 10 cent, 20 cent. And... Um, Yes, I believe that uh, that it probably had something to do with the fact that I'm feeling fine. It also it probably has something to do with the fact that I decided to become a runner when I was about 60. And between the ages of 60 and 68, I, I ran several half marathons, as you can see from my shirt. I see there. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to get back into shape and maybe win the 80-year-old championship. I don't know. There you go. There's a goal to set for yourself. I mean, it would be, honestly, I don't even know where you'd rank that in your long list of accomplishments in your life. It's, you've, uh, you know, I read your non-official autobiography that isn't an autobiography. You made very clear in several paragraphs, or several chapters, I should because say. Because I leave out stuff. I don't leave, I leave out the boring stuff. I only talk about anecdotes. I don't, I don't go into years where nothing particularly interesting happened. That's the only reason why I say it's not an autobiography, but it's it's pretty autobiographical as well as adding some other things in there, such as my ideas for the world. And of course, the book I'm talking about is Geeking, Grifting, and Gambling. That's the one you want to get. David's life story, as much as he's willing to share, anyway. <laughs> I don't I don't leave out the bad parts. I leave out the boring parts. I like it. Well, I want to get into all of that stuff. We have to go back to the beginning here, Teaneck, New Jersey. Yes. Uh, Dad was a super genius, according to the book. He was, that is a fair description. The whole family, really, but... It, it, well, I have two cousins right now. One is a professor of law at Stanford. The other one, his brother, that was, that's the other David Sklansky, who has to use his middle name when he, when he describes himself, and I feel so <laughs> bad about it because he's such a superior person. David A. Sklansky, right? David A. Sklansky, David Allen Sklansky, and because of me, he has to use that middle name, <laughs> and I feel guilty about that because he's, he's a much more uh, uh, impressive person than me. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's um, presidential material. I wouldn't be surprised if he's the next uh, nominee for president, but and then his, but his brother may be even more uh, uh, impressive because his brother is uh, Mark Skolansky, and he is in charge of the P Pediatric Heart Institute at UCLA. Man, he does he does operations on babies before they're born on their hearts, and that's two of my cousins. And a, a third, two other, three of my other cousins went to Harvard, and um, yeah, they're all amazing people. I'm the black sheep of the family. You did father. go to an Ivy League school temporarily, though. I went to Wharton 
and which is not in the same league, really. But that's, yeah, Penn, right? That's Penn, University yeah. of Pennsylvania, the, the, the business school at Penn. I was there for about a year and a half, and I played poker. My major was poker. So you say in the book that your dad kind of turned you into a nerd a little bit by giving you puzzles all the time, right? Yes. I, that he Well, I mean, I was the typical, like, say, young math prodigy, partially because of genetics and partially because he would pepper me with um, logic problems of all sorts, not just math. But he would, you know, I knew algebra by the time I was 10 and calculus by the time I was 12 and all these different um, types of logic problems, including some that apply to poker, the kind where you have to think about what the other person is thinking about a third person. That's one type of logic problem. And that, of course, comes up in poker, where some of your plays are not because of what the other player is thinking about you, but because of what the other player is thinking about a third player. And, and that comes up a lot. Especially and then the game tree gets gigantic. Yeah, well, especially in a, in, a, in a, let's say, when you're near the bubble in a, in a poker tournament, sometimes you have to seriously uh, revamp your opinion of a guy's hand when you know that he's doing something that to a third guy, and the third guy is worried about going broke. So if, if opponent number one raises opponent number th- number two, and the opponent number two is desperately trying to make it into the bubble, then I can assume that opponent number one doesn't have to have that much because he's trying to scare off opponent number two. Right. So, so this is similar to the, the logic problems my father gave me 70 years ago, 65 years ago. You included a bunch of them in the book, and I'm embarrassed to say only one was uh, a slam dunk answer in my favor. <laughs> the other ones were a b- bunch of stumpers for sure. So uh, you clearly showed some aptitude, even though you say you're the black sheep of the family. Like, you know. Yeah, well, because I didn't do, I didn't go on to become a doctor or a lawyer or, or a physicist. Right. So you're at Penn, and you discover a poker game. Yes, I had played a little bit of poker as a senior in high school, and then when I got to Penn, there were a group of guys. Well, you rebelled, right? You were like cutting class, as they said, right? And yeah, I, did, I didn't. I I couldn't stand learning subjects that didn't interest me only because they were required. So if and and I never really studied that hard because I I, I had a good memory, so I didn't have to bring my books home and. And I guess the biggest thing I did that, and the worst thing I did uh, was that when I discovered that I was kind of nerdy and unpopular, and I tried to figure out what is the best way to um, change that, I uh, first of all, I tried to befriend the, the more popular kids at school who were smart, but not that smart. And one way to do, befriend them was to let them cheat off me. Yeah. And then they liked me. So I was like, you know, okay, he's a little bit weird, but he's, he's still our buddy and we can, we're, we're going to get better grades because I would sometimes let them cheat off me in a test. So I, I was a schemer even back in 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. And that's when you started riding, riding a motorcycle and uh, hanging out in pool halls? I well, when I got to be old enough to ride, to, to drive a car when I was seventeen years old, I I had a little motorcycle. It was called a Honda S ninety, and 
And I was uh, kind of uh, insufferable is the word that, that, that some people might use. I, was, I knew I was good at, really good at, at math and logic, but I didn't, I wasn't studious. Yeah. I, I'm a math rebel. I like, it's, yeah. just, it's just funny to picture, you know. I, I, mean, I wasn't, well, there have been other math kind of rebels, a, a guy named Cardano who uh, invented, helped invent the, the, the cubic equations, was sort of like that. Then there was a guy who was in the, in the mob, a, a guy, Dutch Schultz, had, um, he had an assistant who was a mathematician, uh, Abadab Berman was his name. And uh, so he reminded me of me a little bit. Because <laughs> uh, I wound up doing the same thing. I wound up being sort of a math consultant for people who uh, were not the best people, but they they kind of liked me because they yeah. knew that some of their schemes required a little bit of mathematical knowledge and they'd come to me. If you were in the mafia, they would have called you numbers or something. <laughs> yeah, They'll run it by I numbers could, I, over there. I, I couldn't be in the mafia because I'm <laughs> Jewish. However, even that was something I thought about once because in order to be Jewish, in order to be in the mafia, your father has to be Italian. In order to be Jewish, your mother has to be Jewish. Right, you could do both. So I could actually, I, but I, but my father was also Jewish, so that ended that. And then again, you could be a an, an associate for the mafia and and make them money, and uh, they would also like you. The notable example would be um, Meyer Lansky. Yeah. Without the SK. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, Lansky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then again, you could be Jewish and have them like you at first, and then not like you so much afterwards, such as Bugsy Siegel. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, anybody visiting Vegas should check out the Mob Museum. It's it's so amazing and such a good waste of a day. For I sure. was just there, and I was flabbergasted by how much better it was than I expected. Right? I was like, I, every there corner you so turned. many things there that it isn't just like pictures of the old mafia guys. There's so many other things that are interesting yeah. there. Yeah, especially as it pertains to the formation of Vegas, too. Like. Uh-huh. No, it was, it's, a, it's a very good museum. Uh, okay, so you got a bit of a rebel streak going. You find poker, but your first poker game was a bunch of thinkers, right? First poker game was at, at Penn. My first serious poker game. The, we weren't allowed to use money though. We had to keep track of the money. Somebody kept score with um, pencil and paper of uh, how much each person bet, how much they owed. But then after every hand, everybody would discuss how the person hmm. played and whether there was a better way to play it. Now the main game that we played though is a game that is not played in casinos called High Low Split Declare. It's a great game, actually, and very skillful, but it's so susceptible to collusion that um, it would never work in the casino except for maybe small stakes. Now, I think it might actually work for small stakes because colluders aren't going to go and play two and four or three and six. And if I was a consultant for a card room, I would tell them to see whether or not they could uh, spread a high-level split declare game, but it could never So be. it's a stud variant. But there's no qualifier. It doesn't, have, it doesn't have to be stud. Oh, okay. All it is is that at the end of the hand, you declare whether, and there's a couple ways of doing it, but you declare whether your hand is going is is vying for high, or or low, or both. 
Now, if you are greedy enough to say, I'm, I'm vying for both of them, and you, you need to win both or you, you win nothing. Yeah. But if you say, I'm vying for high, and no one else declares high, you win half the pot without, you could have nothing. Yeah, it doesn't even matter. So you, there's right. an extra adamant element of bluffing. Well, and plus, in other words, if you're good enough to read hands where you can say, well, these two guys are going for a low, I'm just going to declare high, I'm going to get half the pot without having anything. There's a lot of different things you can do. It's, it's, a very, it's a very skillful game, very interesting game, but they don't play it. Now, when they came to Vegas, they didn't even play the other version, which was the high hand and the low hand split without declaring. And that is fairly similar, and it, it's easy, it was easy for me to adjust to that. I came in second to Doyle in the World Series of Poker, I think in 1979, and then he had me write the his chapter in his book yeah on on that game uh, and and then in fact the world the gamblers book club John, Sid not Sid Luckman John Luckman asked me to write a book on high low split of his little for his little rack of 64 page books and i said to him not enough people play it but there's a new game in town I have not played it very much, but I can think about it and write a good book about it. It's called Hold'em Poker. <laughs> and there was only like one game in town, but I knew that it was going to get popular. And that was my first book in 1976. 1976. Yeah. I, I hand wrote it. I hand wrote it. Now, what was available back then in 1976? As what far as could books? you get? Yeah. Was there anything? There were books on poker, but they were bad. Yeah. Uh, frankly, they were bad. Now, there was a book written, I think, a few years later by a guy named Norman Zeta that was pretty good, and he used game theory all the way back then. He was a PhD in math. And then there was another PhD in math named Nesmith Ankeny, and he wrote a book about draw poker that was, again, based on game theory. All these kids who think they discovered game theory <laughs> now, it was... Well, first of all, it was invented in the, uh, the... The original game theory was invented, I think, in the 30s or 40s by a guy, guy named John von Neumann. And then it was perfected by the fellow who was in the movie, who was portrayed in the movie A Beautiful Mind, John Nash. Right. Russell Crowe himself. Russell Crowe <laughs> was, the, was the actor. And it's because of John Nash that... Um, Game theory, which they call GTO now, uh, was eventually uh, used in detail in uh, poker games. However, in all games, yeah. but it, but that game, that book that you're looking at right there, that was written in 1978. There's a chapter on game theory. Of course, I you're talking it. about what some people call the Bible of poker theory. The Theory of Poker. The Theory of Poker, and it was written in, if I remember correctly, the first year that it was written was 1978. It had a different title, and there is a chapter on game theory. The only difference between the game theory I wrote about and the game theory that you hear about nowadays is that I, was, I, I kept it to the last round of betting, where there's not more cards to come, where it's a little bit simpler, where, where the game theory involved bluffing only, bluffing versus not bluffing. And uh, that's a little bit easier to explain. 
since then they've used computers to come up with using game theory in more more difficult situations. Yeah, now the tree is, you know, starting from the beginning and it's isolating certain positions at the table and stack sizes and there, there's a lot of hundreds of variables. There's a lot of different things involved in in game theory. However, the the reason for my column in general is to show why you shouldn't use it. That's right. If you're listening to this now, you should be on the lookout for David's return to uh, poker columns with how we, what are we going to call this? GT no? Is that what we decided on? Well, we <laughs> GT no seems like the best one for me. My first thought was GT Oh, deviant, since I'm deviating from it. But then that's a little bit too nasty. Then a friend of mine gave me an idea, but I don't think it's the best one. He said, um, G to B or GT not to B or something like that. <laughs> I think GT no is probably yeah, the simplest. We will, we will, you're, uh, the, you're the one who will make that decision. Yeah, though. we'll decide and pick the best one. But uh, <laughs> be on the lookout for that, card player readers where you can learn when to deviate yourself from the GTO play. Which, when you're playing against all but the best players, is basically always. Yeah. Now, it doesn't hurt to know GTO, because if you know GTO, then you know that's your, your, your fallback position. But you shouldn't even use your fallback position unless you have good reason to think that your opponents are very tough. Because what GTO does is make his decision after you've acted very difficult, or the way they describe it, they, to make him indifferent. So no matter what he does, no matter how he plays, you will win a certain amount if you have the if if your cards uh, dictate that you should win, you will win what you deserve to win. The problem is that you should win more than what you deserve to win. And if you know how the other guy plays, you will. The most obvious example would be GTO will tell you that when someone else bets on the river, you should call him with your mediocre hands a certain percentage of the time to prevent him from having easy bluffs. So even though you're not happy with your hand, you got to call them a certain percentage of the time. They tell you how, the GTO tells you what percentage. But suppose you've been playing with a guy and you see that he never bluffs. If you follow GTO and you call this guy and then he shows you the hand and he's not bluffing, you just threw away a lot of money. Yeah. Or vice versa, suppose it's you who's decided whether to bluff and you see this guy never folds. GTO will tell you to bluff him a certain percentage of the time. To remain balanced. <laughs> to remain, as they say, balanced. <laughs> but being balanced is, is a GTO concept because GTO is so afraid that somebody else, somebody will figure out what, the, what, it, what you have. You have to constantly play in such a way that it is not easy to figure out what you have. But that's silly if you're playing against a bad player. There are millions of times where you make a bet against a bad player, and 
the, everybody else at the table knows that you have it. I mean, you've probably been in that situation. Yeah. You know that the guy's not bluffing. Everybody else, <laughs> but the guy he's betting doesn't know it, or maybe he just doesn't have the willpower to throw his hand away. So you can often play in a way that where you're pretty much giving away your hand, as long as you're not giving it away to the person you're playing against. And that's the basis for my new book, for our new book, Mason and our new book, and the basis for my uh, column. And of course, that book available now, Small Stakes, No Limit Hold'em, Help Them Give You Their Money. Help Them Give You Their Money is pretty much as exploitative as you could explain it, right? Right. You help them give you... You could even go further than than, uh, just noticing how they play and then taking advantage of it. If you want, you can take it one step further and some of the better players, I think, do this, which is that you can manipulate them into playing worse. By the way you act at the table, by the way you play certain hands, you can actually make a player who normally plays decently start playing worse. And when I say worse, I mean worse as far as you're concerned. In other words, you can scare a guy into never uh, calling you on the end when you make a big bet. Make him unbalanced. Or or you can... um, I mean, let's face it, there are people who are doing very well in tournaments. I am not going to mention names, but there are people who have no clue about not only GTO, but are are very uneducated about the simpler math. There's one particular person I have in mind who has been on record saying that ace-king offsuit will beat ace-king suited if you just deal out the cards. Because you can make two flushes rather than one with Ace King wow. Offsuit. This is a person <laughs> who has done, to say the least, very well in tournaments. Because when he's in a tournament, he is in these big tournaments. Many of his opponents are bad players, and there's something about poker that is different than virtually every other game that you can mention, which is that in Every other game, let's say golf, if you get even better, if I'm a very good player and you're a good player, and then I get even better, so I used to beat you by six strokes, now I beat you by nine strokes, I got better. That also means that the the poor players that I got, that I was beating, who I used to beat by 20 strokes, now, now I'll beat them by 23 strokes. So if I get really good that helps me get better not just against good players but also against weaker players it's not true in poker the techniques that get that turn me from good to very good if i use them against bad players i'll do worse i mean that's that's like the number one complaint right from a 1 2 Two five player reading some of the advanced concepts that are out there today is they they're not playing in the Poker Go studio against wizards in a twenty five k. But they will actually. The point is <laughs> that it's the one game where if you become even better, yeah, and you stick to that technique, you will do worse against bad players than the guy who isn't as good as you. Yeah, you would rather have the guy who's not quite as good as you playing those bad players if you were going to stake them. It's almost two different skill sets of so, poker, right? Well, it's because of the fact that certain plays 
that appear ridiculous to good players work against bad players. For instance, the, the extreme example that, has, that I put in, in our new book is uh, I, we have a, a friend who used to make lots of money by whenever he was dealt two aces, he would just push, it, would be, it could be a one and three game, he'd push $500 in there. And people would call him saying, I can't have aces. He wouldn't do that with aces. And they, but he did have aces. I mean, that's, it's an insane play, but if somebody's going to turn around yeah. and, and call him... You do it until it stops working. Right. <laughs> and so, it'll never stop working. And no, and no expert would ever think about doing something like that because it's so wrong, theoretically. Yeah. Well, there, there you go. You know, Small stakes, no limit, hold them. Help them give you your money. Go check it out. Of course, you have written... Nearly 20 books on poker at, that's, at this point? Well, about four of them are not really on poker, but... I've, so you have I a blackjack I, book? I have a blackjack book, which I actually think uh, was underestimated because the blackjack book is, is different than any other blackjack book. Each chapter is a number, and the number would be what you're dealt. In other words, <clears throat> the, there's a chapter on 13. Oh, cool. So all your plays are 13. That's oh, what you do with 13. Now, you might think that, what is there to say about 13? You might say, well, you stand if the dealer has a 6 or lower, and you hit if the dealer has a um, 7 or higher. But there is something to say about 13, which is that if you're playing a single deck, and for some reason you're, you have a photographic memory, or... Or, or, or if you're counting eights, it turns out that if, if you have 13 and all the eights are gone, you stand with 13 against a 10. It changes the, it flips the math the other way. Because huh? you, because you're 21 cards or not. So there, anyway, there's something to say about every total. Right. And I go into what there is to say about each total, so the basic stuff to say about it, and then some of the more advanced stuff. And that's my Sklansky Talks Blackjack. I do it all in conversational tone. It's not just splitting aces and eights, the basic stuff you find on the gift shop card, right? Well, I mean, it, 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 <laughs> and, it, and it also explains why certain plays are, are done. One of the things that um, I have always been good at, and it's because of the fact that my father taught me when I was so young, is explaining fairly advanced concepts to people who weren't that good at math and or logic, and, uh, and I, I go out of my way to do it. And one of the reasons my, why that my books have sold well and I've been told this many times is because when I when I suggest something or when I talk about what should be done I don't just say to do it I explain why so for instance one of the chapters in this book is that the best hand to contemplate going all in with before the flop the one that makes the most sense the one that you should be most likely to do it with is ace king and then I explain why. I say because when you have ace-king, it's less likely you're up against an eight, a pair of aces or a pair of kings, which is the Blockers. catastrophe. That would be a <laughs> catastrophe, right? Yeah. You have another reason is because you may, you may get somebody who actually is a slight favorite over you, namely small pairs to fold. And another reason is that when you move in, you will get to see all five cards, which is a very important thing with ace-king because, you see, as opposed to, let's say, two jacks, when if, if you get a flop that you don't like with 
let's say a pair of tens or a pair of jacks. You still got a pair. <laughs> yeah, but you have, but you but you only have two outs. So to, right. to, to, if you're beat on a flop, you only have two outs. If you if you are beat on the flop when you have ace king, you have probably have six outs. Yet, if someone else bets, you can't call with only six outs. So you take away you their opportunity it. to knock out six outs. And there's a couple other reasons. So I go into detail. So when I say the best, I don't just say the best hand to move in with is ace king. I then point by point explain why. One of the things we talk about is why this idea that when you're first in, you should always raise is just wrong against very bad players. You might want to limp in early position with certain hands for a variety of reasons. I gave eight different reasons why limping first in could be the better uh, thing to do. And the biggest reason is because the people in the blinds maybe trying to play well and if you raise they will fold their bad hands but if you don't raise and then they flop pair they get themselves in trouble yeah so why would you want to knock out a person who has trouble on flops will get trouble yeah. will we'll lose a lot of money to you later on that's one of the keys in help them book. give you their money that's how you help them give you that's exactly right <laughs> How you help them. You don't want to make the opposite of that, uh, of that is don't help them play well. Yeah. Don't bet an amount where most of the hands they have, they will fold where they were right to fold. Now, GTA hates, when I say GTO, I mean as if GTO was a person. Yeah. GTO hates <laughs> that because GTO says, you got... You can't be doing that because people will figure out what you're doing. But they don't figure out what you're yeah. doing. They, if they could, if they could, and then they turn it. When you do not use GTO, you can be exploited. But the only people who are exploiting you are the people who are in the, in Bobby's room in, at, <laughs> at the Bellagio. Yeah, they're not they're the people <laughs> in your game aren't going to exploit it. Yeah. So um, the people reading card player aren't, aren't gonna. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's probably some. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that. Because... The stars read our read our magazine, but only to see their photos. No, there's. I think that there's, <laughs> there's there's some columns. I think that go into uh, the advanced strategies and the advanced strategies. The 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 the, the better your opponents, the the closer to GTO you you want to play. On the other hand. If you can find a game where there's a couple pretty bad players, you will make more money in the long run than you will if you're playing against good opponents in a much higher stakes game. I mean, so many times in my life I've been playing in a mid-high stakes game and I look over at the high stakes game and I don't look at them as being super smart. I look at them as being super dumb. Yeah, because they what are they doing while playing each other? And there's been a couple of times when I was so, like I say, insufferable. I've actually done this a couple of times when I've seen you know, like a game like that, and these are all great players. And I walk up to the table. It's, it's I guess not surprising that some people dislike me. And I go to each player and say, "What do you think this game is worth per hour to you?" And they'd give me a number, and I write it down, and I number it down. And of course, that every one of them would give me a positive number. Right, so, right, right. Well, wait, so, what is the house uh, like? 
throwing in two hundred dollars <laughs> in every pot? Like, how can this be? How can? <laughs> yeah. Like, what are they all think that? Because they all think that they are so good. The the problem that that they all have is they are confusing. Even the very best players often confuse clear cut errors with important errors, by which I mean. There are errors that are indisputable, but they only cost you a tiny amount. Just because I can identify, if I can identify 15 errors that you make in one hour, and another guy is in a game where he can only identify seven errors that someone else makes, that doesn't mean I'm going to make more money than him because your errors might be 15 small ones. He found the guy who's making seven or, or, or a table where they're making seven bad ones. You got to, yeah. you got to add. And, and it's not only, and there's a third thing. It's not just how bad those errors are. Well, it's how often they, they come up. That's well, that's what I'm saying. Seven, but you, but there could also be errors that aren't that big a deal, but they happen all the time. So you have to balance all that out. Right. You can't just say, which is the, um, the best play, like the, example I use all the time is I suppose you um, are up against a guy a guy raises and you know he will always have aces kings or ace king somehow you knew that and you sit down and you look at um, two queens and then I say to you are you the favorite or are you the underdog when you have two queens and you know the other guy will move in with aces, kings, or ace-king. Well, there's something interesting about that about that question. And the reason why it's interesting is because the beginner will say something, the better player will say some, the opposite, and the best player will go back to what the beginner said. <laughs> and the reason why is because the the beginner will say, well, two out of the three hands beat me. Aces and kings beat me. The ace-king doesn't beat me. So therefore, I'm in trouble because two out of three hands beat me. And then the fairly good player will Combination say... Combination of hands. <laughs> yes, the fairly good player will say, Oh, no, 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 no. You're <laughs> wrong, sir, because kings is only six combinations. Aces are six combinations. Ace-king is 16 combinations. So I actually beat... I actually have the best hand 16 out of 28 times. And then the really good player says, <laughs> yeah. wait a second. The first guy was right because when you have queens against kings, you're 16%. When you have kings, when you have queens against aces, you're 16%. When you have queens against ace-king, you're 45%. Yeah. So you actually are an underdog with the two queens, even though you're the favorite more than half the time. So these are some of the things that... Um, you know, I talk about, I've talked about it over It's almost the like that next level regression in a game, right? <laughs> well, I mean, these things can come up. And then there's mistakes that, that are, uh, as I said, they hardly ever matter. Like if you, if I, if from now on, for some reason, you, you, you made a pact with the devil and, and, and he says, from now on, you have to play seven deuce suited. You have to limp in with seven deuce suited under the gun every time you get it for the rest of your life playing poker. 
and you say, well, in that case, I guess I got to quit poker. Well, you shouldn't say that. Yeah. Because that means, oh, 16, how often is that going to come up? And you still might even win those hands, right? Right, right. So, so it's a leak, but it's not insurmountable. It's, it's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. So all these things have to be taken into account. And um, and that that's not game theory anymore. Now we're talking about just probability theory. There's, the, the two things aren't exactly the same thing. Game theory is, is a strategies to make the other guy indifferent and to make sure you're not exploited and to be balanced and all that, and I go into that. Now, you're just using simple probability to figure out whether or not a hand is worth calling with or this or that. That's We, we go into that in, in this book. I mean, I'm pretty happy with this book. Uh, there's a few cases where we, we get almost controversial, and we got some criticism for some of our controversial plays, but... Um, well, people are going to have to buy it to, to, yeah, to know, see I, that one. Because yeah, you have to buy it. <laughs> I do want to get back to these crazy life stories because okay. you've done a lot. Okay. Uh, you, we brought up the Blackjack book, but you were like, you weren't just a guy running numbers in your garage. You lived this out. You were barred from all over playing, I guess, uh, AC, Reno, some places in Vegas. The well, Being barred from being a Blackjack player was, was common back when I was playing because the book by Edward Thorpe had come out in 1962 and no one thought that blackjack could be beaten until then. He used a computer to show that it could be beaten and um, by counting cards. And um, and you were a good counter. Yes. And, uh, and also, I even went a little further than that and occasionally would find a sloppy dealer who would expose their whole cards. So they, they knew that when I was in the... In the um, Casino, they knew that uh, that I had an edge, and there used to be a detective agency called the Griffin Detective Agency, and they barred hundreds, if not thousands, of people from from playing blackjack. But for a while, it was it was pretty nice, uh, and then I also made money on promotions, on casino promotions, because some of them were. Ridiculous. I mean, it, it it was ridiculous that they didn't have anybody in the casino who had the, a clue about the kind of math that literally a million people in the country knew could have. But they, yeah, there were a lot of examples in your book about you exploiting basically crazy odds that the casinos were giving out. I talked to Bob. Um, who was it? Um, a former uh, blackjack card counter himself. Uh, who was talking about it? Uh, Bob Bright, who was saying he used to count cards back in the day when casinos were giving these crazy odds, not realizing that they were shooting themselves in the foot. Right? It, it's happened. It happened all the time. It's. It's. They're still. They still make some kind of mathematical mistakes. They. I. I really. Okay. I, I would assume all of those, you know, loopholes have been choked out of society by now. <laughs> well, sometimes they're a little bit deep. Like I hear. I hear secondhand that the most successful gambler of all time. Won it at Baccarat, and he did it because he used a computer to calculate the best time to quit when you were getting a rebate. It's probably not worth going into, but the casinos give rebates to high rollers if they lose a certain amount of money. And if you do it right, you quit when you're doing, once you pass a certain threshold because the rebate becomes less and less valuable to you, 
he calculated what it was. He would go to casinos, he'd get the rebate, and he made, he won millions. And they didn't, they either didn't realize that that this was exploitable. The bottom line is they, in general, don't have people who know probability one hundred and one. Most of most of this did not take a genius. I mean, the biggest score I made for many years was a simple parlay card where they were paying if you bet ten you bet ten football teams and they were usually giving you like a hundred to one if you got ten out of ten and another twenty to one if you got nine out of ten. Terrible odds. And then they but then they added they, they changed it to they gave they were giving you a hundred and sixty to one for ten out of ten. And um trying to remember what it was now they were they're giving you I think um it was more than it should have been <laughs> but what, what they did the basically what they did is they gave you they were giving you 20 to 1 for 8 out of 10 they didn't realize that 8 out of 10 is so much easier than 10 out of 10 it's 45 times easier and they were giving you and they were giving you 20 to 1 for that. You added it to everything else, and you had a situation where if you bet every combination, it cost you $1,024, and you got back like 1700 instantly. Yeah. And so you can the, scale it up from there. Yeah, they went, they, they did these kind of things all the time. And um, to this day, they uh, somebody thinks that they can they can give you uh, this or they can give you that, and, and uh, there are people... I know to this day who will go running around uh, and making some money from it. Even slot machines uh, uh, have been at times beatable. I didn't, once I started making money from the books, I, I didn't bother with it. But sometimes I wish I had because there, it, it was happening all the time. Well, that's kind of what your job was with Bob, right? With, I'm talking about Bob Stupak, of course. You were kind of his numbers guy who could see all the angles he didn't right well yes and but we um <clears throat> well first we were, how did that relationship start and like yeah if you could get into I, it i remember exactly how it started he had he had come to town he had had a very small little casino called the vault and then he built vegas world which was a hundred rooms and it was in a, it was in a spot which was was not in a very nice place, but he had a little scheme to get people in by having them send him money ahead of time, and then they, he called it the vacation club, and that in itself is another story. But what he had, so he was the owner of a casino, sole, sole owner, and I, I was having trouble becoming a consultant for casinos because if I couldn't go to the owner, if I went to, let's say, the casino manager, he would be scared of me. He would know that I knew stuff that he didn't know, and he was—he wasn't going to hire me and then have the owner say, "How come you? Did, what did you need him for? Why didn't you know it?" Yeah. So I couldn't go. To, but if I could or go point out what he was doing wrong. Yeah. So if I could go to the owner, though, which I did with Bob Stupak and later on with Lyle Berman and a couple other people, but I knew that I, I might be able to get a, 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 an easy job. So during the World Series of Poker, I think it was 1979, around there. He walked into the World Series of Poker down, downtown at the Horseshoe. And I went up to him and I said, you need to know me because I know more about gambling than anybody in the world. 
I didn't want to get too arrogant, but I did say that. <laughs> yeah. I remember I said that to him. And I said, <clears throat> and it just so happened that um, there was something that he could do that to test it. He just, I, I was lucky enough, he said, okay, well, if you're so smart, what's the odds for the house with crapless craps? Now, crapless craps... With the cards, right? No, it's dice game. Craps. Right, but oh, I was thinking of in Oklahoma where they don't let you throw dice and they no, turn no. over actual no, no. poker crap cards. Craps <laughs> is, crapless craps is where you... It's a regular dice game except the 2, 3, 11, and 12, which are normal instant w losers, or in the case of 11, an instant winner, they become points. Oh, you can't craps out. Okay, you can't so, craps Right. So by doing that, it seems like that's helping the player because you're giving him two instead of a loss. You're giving him three instead of a loss. You're giving him 12 instead of a loss. And you're taking away the instant win of 11. So the, and it's just like the ace-king versus the, the queens and the, and the aces and kings. You, three out of the four things that you're doing for him are good. One out of the four things is bad. But the bad thing is way bad you turn a 100% shot into a 25% shot. Now, the other ones are no big deal. If it, when you roll a 12, and instead of losing instantly, it's your point, but you're not. But you're only 14% to make yeah, that. Yeah, when are you going to hit a 12? Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, he said, tell me the, tell me the um, house edge. So I took a piece of paper. It took me about two minutes. I gave him the answer, which he had already known the answer, see? So he used, he said, okay, come have lunch with me tomorrow. I went, I went over there, I had lunch with him, and during the lunch, I said, you know, it's not just this, these math problems, there's other things I might be able to help you with, and he was having another problem involving free gifts that he was giving to people who were coming into the casino. He had five gifts that uh, he was giving out, and then one of them he couldn't get anymore, and he wanted to add a fifth gift, a new fifth gift. And he was doing a, like a survey to find out which, uh, he had some options and, and he wanted to know what should be my, my fifth gift to add on the menu. And he did a survey, but I said, this is the wrong way to do the survey, Bob, because he, he was asking them for first, cho first choice, second choice, third choice, et cetera, et cetera. I said, no, that's not the right way to do it because you might be, because the winner might be somebody's second choice. You don't care what, you only care about what's the first choice of people. So it might be, for instance, an autographed baseball might be the, the first choice of 10% of the people and everybody else says, it's my fifth choice. But that still could be what you want because, anyway, it was, and once I showed him that, then he said, okay, I, I, I need you. And he had, he had... Um, well, you moved in, right? <laughs> I moved, he gave me a free place and... He, uh, if I'm, if I have this here, I think I have it. Yes. David is showing me a business card of some kind. Look at that, Bob Stupak's Vegas World on the fabulous Las Vegas trip. Technically, yes. Technically, right. I guess it is. <laughs> and you see what my position was? Look at that, resident wizard. That's awesome. That was what he made for me back way back then. Resident Wizard. That's such a cool card to have. Yeah. Yeah, so you basically were his right-hand man. You lived there. They, they fed you. And then any problem came up, whether it was staffing issues or gaming issues, yeah, you well, were there to run the numbers, right? 
Yes, and probably the biggest thing I did for him, which is in my book, is that uh, I persuaded him to build a tower. That's right. Which he was not going to build. If you guys look up in the Vegas skyline and see the stratosphere, that is because of David Sklansky. It really is. I mean, it's. I mean, it conceivably maybe. As, uh, that's an exaggeration, but not really. He admitted it himself. Basically, he was saying, we don't have the money, and you said, if we build it, they will come. <laughs> not quite. Very close to that. But, but the reason why I said, I didn't say, if you build it, they will come. He didn't have the money to build it. He only had $10 million out of the $50 million that he knew it would cost. He, and he had tried to use a little scheme to get his customers to, to, to buy pieces and the, and the gaming commission shut it down. He said, okay, that's it. I, he said, I can't get regular investors because regular investors don't trust me. He was considered a little bit of a wild, he, could, he was untrustworthy as what, in their minds. And I said, well, that's because, you know, you, you, you're asking for all this money and all there is, there's a vacant lot. I said, but wait a second, Bob, how much does it cost to get up to the, to the pod? which would be, you know, 70% up to the top. He said, well, that would cost $10 million. I said, you have $10 million? He said, yes, I have $10 million. I said, if you build it, that, if they see it halfway up, then they'll realize you're building it. No one's going to think that you're, going to, that you're screwing them. You're building it. They're going to want to get in on it. Now they're going to want to get in on it. And he said, you really think so, huh? And I said, yes. And he... It could have just ended with a giant pole in the sky, right? Well, I mean, I mean the, <laughs> the point is, if he had built... I, they were not... They, they liked the idea of it, but, but they didn't trust him. But if he was halfway up, now, of course, it's going to be built. Yeah. Now, actually, it wasn't, of course, he was going to be built because he didn't have anywhere near the money. Yeah. But he got it up way halfway up, and, they, and someone came with $300 million to, to not only build the, the, the tower, but then to expand the hotel greatly. And so um, that's why I, I think I'm right to claim that I had something to do with it. I also had something to do with the fact that Dina Titus is our representative. That's another story where, where because I persuaded Bob as his right-hand man to do something, uh, which was in one of my books. I guess you remember reading that. or maybe. And in any case, D, Dina Titus was running for state senator, and her opponent, I won't mention... But her opponent was the incumbent. She was a professor. And yeah, she was at UNLV, right? At UNLV, as far as I remember. Yes, yeah, she was a professor at UNLV. And no one pays attention to who state senators are. But he was the incumbent, which makes him almost a guaranteed winner because no one even bothers to check into that. I mean, unless they're, they're, they're voting straight Democratic, and they'll vote the Titus, but she was losing by five points. So there was a, a week or two to go. And all of a sudden, a, a young girl surfaces with a story that was not denied and was obviously true. She was a stripper, and the opponent had been having an affair with her, and she was annoyed because now they're trying to get her to leave town, her, and so that his this incumbent to win the election and she felt like being being used or whatever and she went to a variety of the media and said to the media I want to tell my story and they heard the story and they said well we're not they're not going to print it I guess similar to what goes on nowadays where the media decides what 
which stories will be helpful to their candidate. And then they, but Bob owned a small newspaper called the Las Vegas Bullet, a weekly newspaper. He liked the idea of owning a, a newspaper. He, she comes to us. I say us because usually every morning Bob and I would be having breakfast together. She comes to us, she tells the story. And uh, she wants him to print it. <clears throat> it got out that, that he was contemplating it, and, a, and an attorney who's still, I think, around, his name is Tom Pataro, came to us and said, you don't want to print this story. I remember he left the restaurant, and Bob says, well, what do you think? And I said, I have no idea whether or not it is correct to change your vote because the incumbent is having an affair with a stripper. However, there will be people who change your vote if they know. Why is it, if, if this is a true story and it will change votes, what, why should the media have the right to, to make this decision? Aren't you supposed to just print it if it's the truth? And he said, I guess you're right. And he printed it. And because of that, Dina Titus won by three or four points. And he swung. And, and now to this day, she's, she's in the House of Representatives, and she's up for re-election again. I did one day have some correspondence with her where, and I said, you know, I, you probably don't know this, but I'm the reason you're <laughs> in the Congress. I mean, she might have won the next time. She might have run the next time. Don't get me wrong. That said nothing to do with her accomplishments or anything. But it does. it is true that her first election, she won because of me. Her second election could have been totally due to her herself. She didn't do anything wrong, but it is yet another little thing that I... Uh, and then, of course, it was Caribbean Stud was another one that was my original invention. I was going to say, you yeah. you got kind of screwed on that one, but you invented Caribbean Stud. I, Or Caribbean Stud, as I, they, I, the classy people cannot pronounce it. <laughs> that is 90, 90, 95% correct. I invented a game... That where the rules were almost exactly the same as Caribbean Stud, and the reason why the game existed is because I had put it into Vegas World uh, on a trial basis. But then, when but then my girlfriend at the time died, and I did not pursue it. And at the time, I was told I couldn't patent it because they said you couldn't patent games. Now it turned out that that was wrong, and that was bad for me. But the a few years after the that game was in, in um, Vegas World, a professional poker player came up to me and said, you know, I have a friend in, in um, Aruba who owns a small casino. He wants to try your game. So let's fly down to Aruba and um, tell him about the game. I said, I'm not going to go away to Aruba. You tell him. He went to Aruba, told the owner, Danny Jones, I mean, it's public knowledge, I don't mind mentioning that. Danny Jones owned the casino, and he um, he started offering the game. He, he changed a couple of small things, and because uh, I was exposing two cards, he only was exposing one card, but it didn't, it was the same betting. It was it, it was simply a simple, a simplified poker game. Simplified poker game. You bet one, and then you could bet two more. And I was using game theory. Ironically, I was using the principles of game theory to build to build this uh, game. 
And then all of a sudden, after several years, it was all over. And then I eventually... And you're like, where's my money? What? <laughs> and you're well, like, where's I, my I money? Up, I, I wound up making some money on it because years later, Shuffle Master was sued by Caribbean Stud. Not by Danny Jones, but by the next owner, which was Micon. They sued Shuffle Master for something else. And Shuffle Master came to me because their lawsuit would go out the window. Micon's lawsuit would go out the window if Shuffle Master could prove that the Caribbean stud was incorrectly patented. Because they did patent Caribbean stud. But the patent office should not have given them the patent. And if the patent was not deserved, because I invented it, then the suit from Micon to Shufflemaster goes away. And when Shufflemaster asked me to uh, recall how the um, Caribbean stud came to be, I said, you know, you should you should hire me as a consultant. <laughs> and they said, well, oh, well, we'll talk about that. But what about Caribbean stud? What happened? I said, I'm having difficulty remembering. <laughs> Nothing's free. But, you know, you should hire me as a consultant because I'll be able to help you in some other ways. And um, they said, okay. And so it turned out that Caribbean stud was not totally worthless to me, but it still didn't the fact is that when Danny Jones sold Caribbean Stud to to Micon, he got thirty million for it, and um, so that hurt. Yeah, that was one of the various things that have happened to me. That yeah, one of my adventures. That that one would be painful. Yes. Uh, speaking of millions, you once challenged Trump to a million dollar board game. That's right. I, well, I didn't. It was Bob Stupak. Well, you had the idea, right? Yeah, this was yet another uh, example where I gave him some an idea where he had he had won a million-dollar bet on the Super Bowl a few months earlier. This and, is Bob, not Donald. <laughs> yes, Bob. And Bob... Um, he liked the attention. He liked the attention. He said, "What am I going to do next?" And we, I remember we were walking through the convention center where they were, where they had the gaming show. And he said, "What am I going to do next?" And it just so happened that a few weeks earlier there was this new game came, that came out. It was called Trump the Game. And when it was advertised, Trump uh, was a little bit—I'm um, not sure what the right word is—but he, in the in his advertisement, he, Trump-like. He, he was Trump-like. That's actually a good word, yes. <laughs> he was Trump-like because he said, you know, this game will really show you whether you have it or not in the business world. And um, if you don't, it's okay. Just go home and enjoy the wife and kids. You know, snidely. A snide little comment at the end. That was in the his advertisement. And so now I said to Bob, challenge Trump to his own game for a million dollars. Put and, and he said, okay. And he did it, and he put it in a full-page ad in two newspapers in New York. You can look it up. It's still on, it's on the Internet. And That's cool. If you can see, look at it, the Trump Stupak Challenge. You'll see it. There'll be something about it. Uh, <laughs> 1990. Wow. Okay, so you see there's a... And so, and, and 
and Trump tried to wiggle out of it by saying he's just trying to get publicity off of me and and all that. But in the in the uh, challenge, Bob said, "I, you think you're so good or whatever." I forget what he said. But then at the very end of his challenge, he said, "But Donald." If I beat you, don't worry about it. You can still just go back to the wife and kids. <laughs> so that was another little... Uh, use his own words against him. Use his own words against him. And we, we used to, I mean, we used to just love to scheme, come, come up with different schemes. I mean, probably one of the... Well, see, crapless craps, by the way, the answer to the crapless craps question is that you, the... Uh, player has a five and a half percent disadvantage as opposed to one and a half disadvantage for for regular craps it's really amazing yeah. and yet so that's what he what he had in his casino another thing but he had thought of it first another thing that he did think of first and yet which put him on the map was something called double exposure 21 where he would show the whole card and uh, it turns out that that doesn't help the player to the point where it looks like it should and uh, he he took ties, paid even money on blackjack, and that was enough to make up for it. But the game that I invented for him was something we called Experto 21, which is we dealt every card to the bottom, but only paid even money on blackjack. And because um, we like knew, a card counters, but because the, well, <laughs> it wasn't really because taking away the taking away the one and a half to one on blackjack seems like it's no big deal, but it is a big deal. And unless you were a super duper card counter, you couldn't make up for it. And there was a lot of people who fancied themselves card counters, and they thought, "I get to play every, see every card." Yeah. How much like was was there a lot of teams back then? Like they depicted in the Twenty One movie, where they would signal somebody over who was a big better, that, and the count was good. That is unnecessary, except when they use shoes. You see, when there's when you're when you're playing on it with a shoe which means four decks or more, yeah. the, the, the cards are not favorable to the player very often. When you're playing one deck, the cards are favorable to you almost half the time, and then you bet more. When you're playing a shoe, maybe the, the cards, this don't quote me on, I'm not sure of the exact figure, but I would guess that the cards are favorable to you no more than 10% of the time. So if you're sitting there playing and playing and playing, waiting for these occasional times when it's good, you're wasting a lot of time and et cetera, et cetera. So what they, just, what they figured out what they would do is they would have a bunch of people playing the minimum at yeah. several different tables. Five bucks a hand, yeah. Whatever the minimum was. And then the, those rare times where the shoe turned positive, they would signal to who they called the big player, and then the big player would come in and play. Now, what they've done to thwart that, I believe, is they won't let people come in in the middle of a shoe, or maybe they, they, have, they reserve the right to not let them come in in the middle of a shoe. But at the time, that was another thing that, that was... Uh, you know these mathematicians figured out doing. They even, they even figured out how to beat roulette using uh, two different techniques. You know when you are up against um, these super smart guys, they 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 have ways of uh, figuring out various uh, flaws. And that was what I did for quite a while. That was how I was making my living uh, until the book started really. Um, 
poker boom took off, and when all the, of a sudden, people yeah. wanted their theory. Yeah, when the poker <laughs> boom, when the, now when the poker boom took off, all of a sudden, books that had that were on the market for already for ten years, all of a sudden, exploded. Every one of my books sold way more ten years after they were printed than when they were printed, and um, in fact, it got so incredible that I think I have a claim to fame that I don't know for a fact, but I'm pretty sure I have this as a claim to fame. The, the Amazon uh, website, they rate every book as far as its selling rank. I don't know if you know that. Uh, that's like five yeah. million books. So you pick, you pick a book, you, you put it on Amazon, it'll say this book is rated 27,422, okay, or whatever. They also would have a website that would go show their top 100 selling books. Top 100. And it would change every day, a top 100. And of course, the ones that are the best sellers are the ones that make it. There was a period of time when I had three books on that list at the same time. In the top 100. In the top 100. Now, the only other book I know, the only other author I know who's done that is J.K. Rowling with... Um, Harry Potter. Harry, Harry Potter. But that's fiction. I, As far as I know, there is no non-fiction book other than mine. Now, they were not high up in the rankings. They were like 40, 60, and 80. But still, they <laughs> still were three good. in the top 100 out for, of 5 million considering books. poker's niche, you know. Right. <laughs> but for that short period of time, there, was, there were three of those books in there. And I think I might be the only one ever to have a non-fiction, three non-fiction books. The only person, the person who I think conceivably might have me tied or beaten would be Bill O'Reilly with his um, killing so-and-so books. Yeah, yeah, the series. I don't know. I don't know whether he had, but I mean, two for sure. I know two has been in there, you know. It might be two golf, it could be anything, but, uh, you know, or like maybe Atkins, the Atkins diet books, who knows? <laughs> who knows? But I, as far as I know, I'm the only one ever to have three nonfiction books on the top 100 because of the poker boom, though. I mean, I didn't deserve it. It was the poker boom was like, you but know, still, the fact that they resonated 15 to 20 years later, you know, in some cases. And everybody was reading it, including including a lot of celebrities. There were a lot of celebrities who had my autograph uh, because they all of a sudden wanted to play poker. And at the time, a few of them became pretty good. Many didn't. I uh, I walked into the Bellagio one day, and, I, and there's somebody sitting at a table by himself. As soon as I walk in, he starts quoting from my book. The fundamental theorem of poker says, blah, 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 blah. it's Ben <laughs> Affleck. That's awesome. And then and then a few minutes later, Matt Damon comes up to me and he shakes, uh, Matt Damon, and he wants to shake my hand. And just, just a lot of them. Uh, the um, Jennifer Tilly. Of course, Jennifer Tilly is still a poker player and she yeah. married, I think she married, or at least is living with another... Phil Locke, yeah. Phil Locke. I don't know if they're married, but yeah, they're yeah, long-time but, partners. Yeah, and uh, but and she's the only one. And James Woods, for instance, he's still seriously. Yeah, he still play all the time, yeah. And then, and then there's a guy who, uh, who poker, actually got him in trouble. He's in trouble because of poker, and is and then they say he's semi black man, black bald from from Hollywood. You know who I'm talking about? No, Toby McGuire. Oh yeah. And Houston Curtis was telling me about this because uh, they used to run together in those big games. Yeah, and he was in, you know, he was in that those games that that they had a movie about. I forget the name of the game. Yeah, Molly's um, game or something. Molly's game. Yeah, 
Uh, so there were a while. Toby of... made a little bit of a comeback in the last couple of years with Spider-Man again, but uh... did he? Okay, I, I don't know. But there were a real lot of um, of uh, famous people. They all liked, but because and it was the same with Batman about ten years earlier. What what I think uh, has stopped them is that because they realized how how much skill there is. You see, one of the, GTO is, is is a very sad thing because GTO has allowed people who do not have the ability to read other people's hands and who do not have the ability to disguise their hands well, it has allowed them to be the best players without using the, 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 the skills that for a hundred years were always considered the most important skill. Right. The most important skill, try to figure out what the other guy has. Try to make him think you have something different than you have. None of that all of that is being done in a way that a computer can duplicate it. You know, you keep in mind, when a lot of people don't realize this, when a computer plays poker and, and, and head up a computer is the world champion in Hold'em, the best head up player in both No Limit and Limit Hold'em is a computer. And that computer does pays no attention to how you've played previous hands. None. Yeah. It does nothing to try to fool you. It can even tell you its whole strategy. And you can't beat it. That's because of John Nash's theory. And it sort of has messed up the highest stakes as long as it's Hold'em. See, the old-timers, to me it's really silly because when they use the word poker now, when they talk about poker on their websites, they mean Hold'em. I mean, I don't think Hold'em will last forever because... Of the, of the computers, because there are games where a computer would not be able to, there's just too many combinations. Hold'em doesn't have that many combinations. Or you could even make Hold'em be so complex with just a little tweak that a computer would have trouble. Like I was thinking about, how about this? How about after the flop, everybody has to turn over one of their two whole cards. <laughs> they can choose which one. Now think of that. Think about, so now all of a sudden you have to figure out. The which solver would explode, by the way. It would explode. <laughs> it I would be like new computing time, four years. <laughs> yeah, I think, yes, I think it would go from, from being, from being a, a quadrillion uh, combinations to being, to being uh, an octillion combination. Well, is that the new way forward, just to add little variations on I all think poker games? I would love to. I, I, you see, because then you have to think on your feet. Mm-hmm. Well, if I if I had my druthers, it would be that everybody that that it, you randomly there's a hundred different games, and now they play like eight games, and they they switch every half hour. How about a hundred different games, and they randomly choose one? The computer somebody the computer randomly chooses yeah. one. You never know what the next game is, and you have to be able to figure it out. Or maybe even <laughs> you make up the rules, whatever. We have to randomly figure it out at the table. Because all these guys, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of it is just memory. Mm-hmm. They memorize in this situation. They got to bet. They got to bet two thirds of the time and check one third of the time. Now the GTO does have you mixing up your play. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't have you play the same way with every hand. When you have a hand, there are many hands where you do this a certain percentage of the time and do 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 that a different percentage. But you don't base it on how the other guy plays. You just base it on a... A randomizer. A, a yeah. randomizer. Whether it's your watch hand or... Right. You know, and, turn uh, the clock. And it really has turned... 
it has turned uh yeah, at that okay. point, you're letting fate decide, kind of. It's if everyone's playing by the same script, you're letting fate decide every single time. It's a question of who makes the least mistakes. And, and, uh, and if somebody happened to have a computer in their, on their wristwatch, you can't beat them. Yeah. You can't beat them, and that's, uh, it's a shame. And, maybe... and tells, honestly, what, what about tells? They've completely gone out the window because people are now so balanced, right? That they're well, saying you, that why do the tell? Why would I put stock in it? I've talked no, no, to high no. rollers who tell me, that I even if a guy's shaking, I won't even look at it. Because well, that, that's no, they're wrong there because both suppose they look at their watch and the watch says bluff. Mm-hmm. Now they still they still know they're bluffing. They still know they don't want to call. So they tell they would maybe. So if they are bluffing because their watch told them to bluff, they still might get nervous and have a tell. The problem though is that most of these players who are, who or at their very best, are playing online. Mm-hmm. Now where's the tell? Yeah. So, but that's another reason why you have these why you have these people who are not that well conversant in this stuff, winning a lot of tournaments, especially tournaments where there's amateurs in the game. Because the the best way to beat an amateur is not GTO. Now the GTO experts agree with that. Where I disagree with the GTO experts is the Amount that you deviate from GTO, they they try to stick fairly close to it, and they want to be very sure before they start deviating too much. My book, this book, Mason and my book, basically recommend that you can do some serious deviations, and it's still the best thing to do when you happen to be in a game in a small game. This is mainly for one and three and two and five, where there are people who are just Bad. Bad. <laughs> right. Help them give you their money. Help them give you their money. I don't think there's another book like that. We got some rapid fire questions to, sure. to close it out here. Okay. They don't need to be so rapid because some of these are big questions. But uh, uh, Okay. Okay. Um, three bracelets. Let's talk about the bracelets. You okay. brought some to show me. Uh, you won two in 1982 and one in 1983. Right. And these are unique pieces of jewelry, right? Well, the 1983 is a record bracelet, and I don't have it because my ex-wife has it. But that was that was a record bracelet because they only had the watches in 1982. Yes. Only 1982 because they thought that the watches are worth clearly more than the bracelets, and there's more gold. It's a watch. It's Bob Marseille and all that. But the... Um, the poker players said, now nah, you should go back to bracelets. That's the tradition. And so they, they stopped it after one year. I have two out of the 11 that exist, if 11 exist. Yeah. That's cool, though. Yeah. I mean, people would say, I want the, I want what everyone else has, but now everyone's got one. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there's that, that people want what everyone... But so many people have one now. Now, the, 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 the World Championship bracelet, that's obviously only 55 of those. But of the regular bracelets, there's, there's got to be... Uh, uh, what? Um, it's pushing a thousand, I think, at this point. Yeah, it probably is pushing because a this year they gave over out over two hundred bracelets alone. Oh, then yeah, it's over, way over a thousand. Yeah. What I have is 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 all. I mean, and I am willing to sell it for the right right price, but it's uh, there's only eleven of them. Uh, most of them have big names on it and uh, historic names. Uh, only two people were still alive and won it. Everybody else isn't, and. Um, so it's it's much more unique. Uh, Super cool piece of history for sure. And but and the, the one afterwards, the, the, I mean the the 
sad story about those is that they, the year I won, I won the, um, I won the draw poker bracelet. The next year they discontinued draw poker <laughs> and they put in, instead they put in limit Omaha instead of draw poker. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to defend my championship, but I won the limit Omaha <laughs> and they discontinued that after one year and they put in pot limit Omaha and I came in second. There you go. The, the, but and I should have won it. And then because none I had of the us would have played PLO. We had an all. We had an all in hand, almost uh, dead even money. And I still remember. I had two deuces. He had ace king and a flop came ace king deuce, and he caught an ace Oof. on the river. Otherwise, I would have been, done it three years in a row. Where they disc, I won it, they discontinued it. I won it, they discontinued it, and and then again I would have won the replacement, but I didn't. But uh, <laughs> that was that story. You, uh, there's a crazy story in the book about Bob betting you that he could get a woman. <laughs> yeah, it's not one of the, yes, okay. Do you not want to talk about this yes, story? Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to, it, I'll tell, I don't mind telling the story. The quick version hearing. would be great, but basically Bob had a lot of confidence, right? Well, Bob told me that he slept with 2,000 women. <laughs> so it's I like know what Chamberlain numbers. But he also told me that he was only third best in Nevada. And he gave me the names of the two people who beat him. I, do you want me to tell you who they are? Sure. I don't think either one's alive. One I know isn't alive, and I don't think the other one is either. The guy who came in second was a guy named Morgan Cashman, who okay. owned the, who owned the uh, photography business here. And the guy who came in first was the doc, Elvis Presley's doctor, Dr. Ghanem, Dr. Ghanem. He came in first. Elvis Presley's now, I don't know. This, this is what he told me. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> it doesn't have enough. to be a true story. That's cool. Were you looking up Dr. Ghanem? I was looking up Morgan Cashman. Oh, to Morgan see what Cashman. Else he didn't I think tell. that was his name, Morgan Cashman. Is that? Do yeah, that's right. Okay. Cashman photo. Yeah. Yeah. And the um, so anyway, he, yeah. So he had confidence, but he I guess you could say he had reason to have confidence. And of course, he always would joke with me because he said, "What well, you meet a girl and you teach her algebra? This is why you don't get girlfriends, <laughs> right?" So, so, and and it was funny because I've had a few friends who were really get a lot of girls and they like want to teach me how to do it. So uh, they, but in this particular case, what he did was we were sitting at the bar and uh, there was a pretty girl sitting at a slot machine. He said, "You want me to just show you?" What what I do? I said, well, I, I guess. I don't know what you mean. It's okay. Well, just come with me. So we walked over to, together with the girl. He starts talking to her. I'm just standing there. I'm like, he introduces me, but I'm basically saying nothing. He gets into a conversation with her. Then he says, you want to have dinner? The three of us go into dinner. <laughs> go to dinner in his nicer restaurant. He had a nice one. Well, three of us, he's mainly doing the talking. Occasionally, I might pipe in a word or two. And then he takes her upstairs. We all go up the elevator. I, I said, what is... Then he does it. And then, I mean, I'm there the whole time. He said, okay, did you learn anything? I said, this is... A, I, I, you know, I wasn't sure whether to include that story, but yes, it's a, I will pass a lie detector test. That's crazy. That's you crazy. did it right in front of you. Right in front of you. Right in front, from start to end, from start to finish. Man. You just the most awkward third wheel date ever. You would think. I mean, like you would think she maybe at some point would say, "Who is this other? Why person? is this guy here watching?" 
True story, though. Yeah, that's fun. I had met Bob towards the end, like 2008, maybe 2009. And, yeah, it was hard for me to picture that story based on what I remember of Bob well, in the last two years. Yeah, I know. Well, because he had his motorcycle accident, and yeah. that was a disaster for him. And we had a... I don't know if I put the story in about the... the um, Jerry Lewis Telethon. Did I mention that? That was kind of a funny story because he always dressed like a slob, as did I. But we'd always be walking around the, the town looking for things, looking for ideas. And one day we see the tent in the, behind the Sahara where the Jerry Lewis muscular dystrophy telethon goes on. And we walk up to the tent and uh, we want to go in and see it. And the... the um, Security guard says, "No, you got to go and you got to go get a ticket inside the Sahara." And Bob says, "Well, what would it take? What would it take for us to get in right now?" Because I guess he was going to give the guy a hundred bucks or something. And the guy says, "The only way you can get in right now is if you're Steve Wynn or Bob Stubeck. because <laughs> this is when he was running for mayor and and uh, etc. That's another story in the book. Another story. Are you <laughs> going to ask me the election story? Because that, that one I want to tell. For sure, yeah. Okay, okay. yeah. So this is a million-dollar bet, right? Oh, no, I don't mean that way. That's a different election story. Oh, I'm man, okay. Uh, the, well, it's part of all, all part of the same election Go ahead. story. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, that's just... When, he ran for mayor twice, and... The, <laughs> I have a I have a... A pin I found in a, in a thrift store that I bought that says Bob Stupak for mayor. Did you buy it? Yeah, I do have it. Yeah. Oh, I bet that's worth way more than you paid for really? it. Really? I, I would, like 50 I, I, cents. I, would, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that's worth hundreds of dollars. Really? That's I, crazy. I don't I mean, I never... That was, a, you know, that's got to be a rare thing. Bob Stupak for mayor? I think that you... <laughs> yeah, I bet it is. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Yeah, I, was, I knew it was immediate Las Vegas history yeah. for sure. So, uh, the... Um, but the point is, whenever he 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 won, he mainly did it for publicity. Although he tried, he was trying to win. In fact, he thought he would win because he hired some professional air, commercial makers, and he did all these unethical promotions, like telling people <laughs> to come into the casino and he'll give them, and he gave them prizes and that this and that. And and there was, there was a um, a primary where he where four people were. Uh, running, and then the top two would go in the, in the in the general election. But he was he knew he was going to such lengths to try to win. He bet Jackie Gorn a million dollars that he would win the, the election. And Jackie's the owner of the Southport, right? No, that's his son. Oh, that's his son. Okay, Jackie. No, the and I'm pretty sure that that's a crime. To bet on an election, yeah, especially if you're one of the people. But I'm not. I mean, I don't know. He bet, but he bet, but he bet. At least he bet himself to win. He bet himself to win, and um, it might not. It probably wouldn't have been that big a crime. I mean, it's a lot bigger to bribe someone to to vote some way as than to. I think it might have just been a technicality crime. But he did. He bet a million dollars, and then he won the primary easily which will be part of the second part of the story. And then he, uh, in the general election, the person who came in second was Ron Lurie, and he lost him by four or five points, and he had won so easily in the, in the primary that it seemed odd. But in, and I'll get back to that in a minute, but the, the interesting thing was when it was time to pay Jackie, 
He put a million dollars in a briefcase. It doesn't take as big a briefcase as you think to put a million. <laughs> yeah, a million right. dollars isn't as much as as you would think. It would fit easily in that drawer. I'm pointing to a desk drawer there. Um, and we went to uh, give it to him. And I was the one who was carrying it. It was just kind of cool to be carrying. <clears throat> and I seem to remember that when we, we went, we stopped at a restaurant and he went to the men's room. I, and uh, I'm thinking. Well, I guess he trusted me. <laughs> yeah, I guess he I'm sitting me. in the booth, you know, with a. But anyway, we gave him a million dollars, and now, yeah, it was. But the <laughs> fact is, as I say in the book, I he had originally planned not to to abdicate his throne very quickly, just after he won the money. I said, no, you can, you can be a good uh, mayor. I mean, the, may, the, the people, person who was mayor before him. First of all, it wasn't even, they weren't even doing very much, and it was just a symbolic thing. But he could have, he could have done some good, and he w- he was planning to. Uh, it's, it's sort of like Trump. Even if Trump is a narcissist, he also probably wants to do good just to feed his narcissism. Yeah, that's not a re- particular reason not to, to <laughs> vote for him. But uh, and Bob probably would have done good too with my uh, assistance. But the but the other part of the election story that. Uh, it's very controversial, especially nowadays when they talk about elections not being fair, is that a year before Bob died, and a few years after him and I had parted company, um, he invited me to dinner to talk about my upcoming book, the book D-U-C-Y, that you didn't mention, but that's actually, there's a lot of stuff in D-U-C-Y that I'm proud of, but we didn't get a chance to talk about that, some of my ideas about the world. But the uh, we were talking about D-U-C-Y since there were going to be 60 pages about him, and about and reminiscing and all that stuff, and in the middle of this dinner, just as an afterthought, and this is important, it was just as an afterthought, he didn't bring me there to tell me this, he said, oh, by the way, that election was fixed. I won it. Now, there had been suspicion that the election was fixed. It didn't make sense that he didn't win it. But we couldn't, they, there were some people tried to figure out what, what had happened. There were some irregularities, but they couldn't prove it. But he said, no, it was fixed. And I said, well, how do you know? Why are you saying that now? He said, because Ron Lurie told me. Wow. He said Ron Lurie admitted it to me We uh, a, a few months ago. He admitted it to me. And I'm thinking to myself, well, he knows, he knows that Bob is probably dying. Everybody knew he had leukemia. And it's the kind of thing that he... I mean, it, it, it would have been almost inconceivable that Bob was lying to me. What is conceivable is that Ron Lurie was lying because maybe right. maybe he was trying to make him feel better. And um, but based I, on all indications before that, you know, election, but it looked he like, looked like he was going to win. Yes, yeah, so it looked like it was an irregular election. Now Ron Lurie says yes, and but but the reason why I tend to believe that Ron Lurie was not lying is because he elaborated on it according to Bob. I'm only quoting. I have no first-hand knowledge. <laughs> yeah. But he said that the people, you know, oh, there were a lot of people appalled at the thought that Bob Stupak would be the mayor. Sort of like what's going on today. Okay? That it just seems like it's inconceivable. He was, you know, he was a wild man. And to be mayor was just 
not acceptable. And what would be acceptable would be to do things that would normally be very wrong, but if it meant stopping Bob or stopping Trump, as some people want to do, just almost anything is acceptable. And he said, Bob said to me that Ron Lurie said to him that it was orchestrated by the Mormon church. I am just quoting. I have no knowledge. Yeah, that's some reach right there. <laughs> but he said the Mormon church, which had a lot, which has a lot of power in this town, and I think even more back then, orchestrated whatever the fix was, the other, the incorrect counting or whatever, throwing ballots away. Yeah. And. And I get I, mean, it. I could see people being scared of a casino owner with that much power in town, you know. Especially a casino owner who was too, way too flamboyant and was willing to, and did all kinds of things. Like, I mean, he did not mind doing some things that were, you might call them Trumpian nowadays. But for instance, when he first started his, um, his casino, he didn't have very much money and, and he didn't put very much shrubbery around the casino and he got a letter from the city of Las Vegas and they said there is a rule you have to have a certain amount of shrubbery and if you do not if we you do not have the shrubbery in by such and such a date we will close your casino and Bob wrote them back he said I want to see the headline I'm not going to do it I want to see the headline 400 people out of work, not enough shrubbery. <laughs> Go ahead. Called their bluff. He called their bluff, and they didn't do anything. He actually got a second one, almost the exact same thing. He he was asked for a deposit for his electric bill, right? I think he paid the first one without a deposit, and then and then they deemed he was necessary. They wanted a 50000 deposit. Nevada, this is what he told me again. I don't know at first hand. He said... They got a letter from them, Nevada Power, and says, you, you need to give us a $50,000 deposit. We're going to shut off your electricity. Did the exact same thing. Well, Nevada Power, I want to see the headline, 400 people out of work. Bob wouldn't pay the deposit. Not and, to mention losing one day of business for a giant casino. Yeah. Would probably hurt the power company way more. <laughs> but so the point is that somebody like that, and he was known to be like that, right? It is highly possible that the Mormons said, I'm sorry if we have to fix this election, because let's face it, he doesn't deserve to win it. He bought it. He, he gave people gifts. He did things, that he, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we will be able to sleep to, at night. And then when Ronald Lurie said that, the, I mean, if Ronald Lurie told Bob that the election was fixed just to make him feel better, that would be suspect. But when he goes into the detail and says the right. Mormons done it, if I was going to be as a gambler, as a gambler, it's a parlay. Either I'm lying or Bob was lying to me, I'm lying to you, Bob is lying to me, or Ronald Lurie was lying to Bob. So that's a parlay. Any one of those three things would, would make it not true. I know it's 100% I'm not lying. I think the chances that Bob was lying to me because he <laughs> didn't, it was like a 30-second conversation. We went on to the next thing. I'd say the chances that Bob was lying was 10%, and the chances that Ronald Lurie was lying was, uh, was um, 20%. I think so, the fact that you're analyzing the percentage chance of lying just shows that you're David Sklansky. You know right. what I mean? Well, there's a, so there's an 80% chance that Ronald Lurie was telling the truth and a 90% chance that Bob Stubach was 
telling the truth, that may, makes it a 72% chance that they both were telling the truth and it makes it a 28% chance that it's not didn't happen. Yeah. So I'd bet it happened. There I would bet go. it happened. And I just hope the Mormon church doesn't find it <laughs> too upsetting after all these years that, uh, that, that, that they might not even admit it. This, for all we know, this this podcast might get somebody in the Mormon church, some 87-year-old guy says, yeah, we did it, we did it. Yeah, take we, the credit while you can. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that that is in, now that's in the Geeking and Grifting book. That's, yeah. the, I think, the last chapter or the next last chapter in that book. Yeah, and then after Lurie came the Goodman era, right? So that was another long stretch. Um, let's see, I got a few more and then okay, I'll let you sure. go because we, we're going so long for sure. Uh, I Want to make sure you're not too. Are late. you uh, under any time constraints or an hour and a half, which we've well gone over? But oh, you're but you're worth it for sure. But I mean, when you, so you have to, you will have to cut out things. Is Absolutely that not. People oh, oh, people okay. are going to get the full taste here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, what do you think about Skolansky books and uh, the the use of that term throughout the poker world? It's funny. Uh, they, I actually have a little bit to say about it because. Years after that came out, Sklansky Bucks is, is simply the EV of a bet. So when you make a bet, if I, for instance, make a flip a coin with you and, I, and you lay me $70 to $50, you, you, they say that you've given me 10 Sklansky Bucks. And what they mean by that is that after two flips, I'll be ahead $20, which means that per flip I made $10 on average, and that's the EV. So Sklansky Bucks is a, way of, of, a funny way of talking about EV. Now... Years later, Roy Cook was writing some articles about um, gambling and poker and, and bringing up this e- something similar about when you make a bet, you're actually earning X dollars. It's, you know, the, this is what you're really earning. Your theoretical per bet profit. Right. Whatever, yeah. And then other people to started criticizing him and saying, how dare you do this? Without giving David Sklansky credit. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is ridiculous. I wasn't mad at him. Why wasn't I mad at him? Because it's Pascal who deserves the credit <laughs> from like 1580. Yeah. I never, I never, I have never used that term. Never once have I ever written the word Sklansky bucks. I might have written it recently in the quotes or something. Yeah, in response to it. I yeah. never felt like I. I Someone else came up with that idea. In fact, the D-U-C-Y, the reason why one my book is titled D-U-C-Y is because sometimes when I would write a, a, a post on our, our website, 2plus2.com, I would, after I would explain something, I would say, do you see why? And then they started making fun of it. And instead of saying, do you see why, they would just write these four letters. Doocy. Yeah, yeah doocy. But th- that's what I feel about Sklansky Bucks. I never, I thought it was kind of cute, but I, but I always felt a little embarrassed because I didn't think that. I've done a lot of things that, that I deserve credit for, but not that. For instance, a couple of days ago, somebody was criticizing me and saying, you don't even know what the implied odds are. <laughs> I invented implied yeah. odds. I coined the word, <laughs> but it's one of these new kids and he's reading implied odds. He doesn't know that. <laughs> that's hilarious. But, uh, but no, Sklansky Bucks never... It was it was funny. I showed it to my father. He thought it was funny. But yeah. you know, shout out to Roy Cook, longtime card player columnist. Uh, I edited his stuff for a long, long time for uh-huh. sure. Um, okay, I got two two more. Yes, real quick. You were almost punched by Floyd Mayweather. Yes, it's a true story. <laughs> Very true story. It was just funny. It was a funny story. But uh, I'm with a. 
pretty girl. She happened to be half black. Very, very pretty girl as at the Palms um, movie theater. And um, so this girl I had previously <clears throat> a couple times done something a little bit out of the box where she saw somebody wearing something and I like a hat and I and she and she said well I wish I could have a hat like that and I went up to the person and I said how much do you take for that hat you take sixty dollars or something <laughs> and they took it and I get and I bought it right that's off a real head. baller move for right. sure <laughs> and the, the first time I did it she she got embarrassed the second time I did it she liked it yeah but but now I have to preface that story with because now we're at the we're online for the movies and we were talking about the fact that I keep myself in good shape. And she was a very good athlete, beautiful, but also strong. I said, but I have a pretty good abs, right? Even now I kind of do. And she, I said, you could punch me in the stomach with all your might, and I, I'd hate take it. And she said, okay, let me do it. I said, what do you mean let you do it? We're sitting in, in a movie theater and waiting for online. She said, I don't care, I want to do it. Let's see if you, let's see if you really can. <laughs> I said, okay. I clenched my muscles. She came roaring back. She hit me in the stomach. It hurt, but I handled it. <laughs> you took it? <laughs> I took it. It was like I knew I would. And all of a sudden, this young black kid comes up there and he says to me, can I do that? <laughs> and I said, and I looked at him and I'm thinking, you are, you know, I know you want this girl. I mean, you see that, this beautiful girl, but no, I would. I said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and then I'm seeing, I see this uh, no, incredible necklace he's wearing with you know bling that's uh used uh, that's um what's the, what's the name of the that fake uh diamond thing i forget what it's called zirconia cubic zirconia cubic zirconia i think is what it's usually so but it's was massive yeah so big that it, sh it has to be fake well of course it was <laughs> fake there was no doubt it was fake so i said to him and now i, I and now i'm i'm thinking this guy's annoying. He was kind of annoying. He was out of line to say that. Can I do that? I said, we take 200 of that necklace? <laughs> I was going to give it to her, right? He says, of course, me, 750,000. <laughs> I go, ah, yeah. <laughs> now she's pulling my coat, or my, my shirt. What? What? Shawana? That's her name, was Shawana. What? What? That's Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> it was yeah. Floyd Mayweather. And of course, when he said, can I do that? I think what had, he was had no intention of doing it because yeah. it would have been illegal. I think he, he was hoping I would recognize him and uh, I would recognize him and that he, um, and it would just be funny. Yeah. But, but then, because I sometimes go a little too far with it, I said... I still was I still a little mad, and I said to him, and you have to be a boxing fan to appreciate it back then, which was almost 20 years ago, I said, you're like the best fighter pound for pound there is after Roy Jones. <laughs> now, I don't know if you know anything about boxing, but, yeah. but Roy Jones was also... And he says, Roy Jones, he, he lost a fight. I never lost a fight. Yeah. <laughs> anyway... That's the end of that story, but it, it was a true story. You got a little adventure. <laughs> You've been held at gunpoint three times. Five times. Five. I only saw three in the book. Yeah, don't under underestimate me. Under sell me like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it was five. Um, it's either four or five. Once was cops. Once uh, was a gambling cheater. Once 
was a guy who went on to become pretty big in the mafia. <laughs> and um, now I think I'm forgetting one. And once was my ex-wife. <laughs> and it wasn't even close when I was the most scared. It wasn't even close. It was the fourth one. Yeah, the ex-wife, yeah. Yes. But... Um, I mean, they pistol whipped you in one of them. That's the guy I'm counting. The pistol whipper was the guy that was a gambling cheater, yeah. Man, but still scarier with the wife. Well, I think there was... <laughs> Could have sworn there was a fifth one, and it's. Um, it's you know you. Oh no! When I got, of course, I, the fifth one was when I got home invaded. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Sure. The fifth one. So I got home invaded at gunpoint. You and Doyle one. share that in common, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, what was interesting about the home invasion, which I also wrote about, was what the very first thing he said to me was because he, he burst into my bedroom and he said, "Don't look at me." <laughs> oh my God. You couldn't have said anything nicer to me, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. He said, he says, don't look at me. He meant, and then later on, he applied for a job during the, during the uh, home invasion because I, I did a pretty good job of making him feel comfortable, but I didn't hire him. Yeah, that's smart. Did you ever get uh, closure on that one? Um, did they ever catch the guy? I know you got your car back, but. Oh, I knew I was going to get my car back. He even told me I was going to get my car back when he, when he took it. I mean, he, he just needed it to, to drive away, I guess. And but uh, because he said when they he told me when they find the car, uh, then um, you can say that you did this and do that. But did I get closure? Probably yes, probably. Because but it's it's not clear. The reason why is because the police called me up and said that uh, they found some checks with my name on it, and and then I found out later they invent they they arrested. They arrested some people who had been doing a string of these home invasions, and I think it was the same person. So I guess, but I I wasn't even that um, concerned that he would uh, be caught, but he, because it was like I said, once once we got things straightened out, see what happened. The reason why he applied for a job, and I, I guess it was he was joking, but he. But he found a $5,000 chip. And he said, what is it that you do? And I told him what I did. And he said, do you need a bodyguard? <laughs> but but it was it, 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 it was not as big a deal. Yeah, leave me. your name and number on the counter. <laughs> it, it, was not a, it, was, it was just not as big a deal to me as, uh, as, uh, as it would be for most people because I had already indirectly been n knowing people who... Uh, were more dangerous, I would think, in general. He was. He didn't sound like he was high. I think he was... I don't know exactly what the story is. I don't know whether somebody pointed me out or whether uh, he just... Because a lot of times I forgot to lock the front door. Yeah. And I think maybe he had just gone around looking for, for uh, people who didn't lock the front door. And he had another guy there, and yes, he pointed a gun at me. So... Well, I'm glad that you're five for five. Yeah, you're five for, well, in the case of, yeah, as I said, there, there was one time when I was a little bit... On the other hand, the girl, if she had killed me, she still would have gone to heaven because she saved way more lives because she's no longer alive. Her name is Robin Evans, and uh, we were married, and uh, she was a paramedic, and she not only saved lives that other paramedics would have saved had they been there, but she saved lives that other paramedics would not have saved because 
there were times where she went against what they call protocol because she knew that she had to do it. And she would, I think it had to do with epinephrine. She would gave them double doses where the single dose, but I could be wrong about that, but the single dose wouldn't have been enough. And she was told afterwards, if you had ever, any of these people died, you, you might have gone to jail, but because you saved their lives, you we're not going to say anything about it. Yeah. So if she had killed me, she still would have been on the plus side, you know, the wins versus you got to, you got to add your wins to what to, when you subtract your losses. It's that mathematical brain of yours. Yeah, she would have been still. She would have still checks had plus. and balances. She still would have plus. <laughs> she still would have plus if she had shot me dead. Well, there you go. There you go. That's it. That is the show. I want to thank David so much for taking the time to be on the podcast and to share the stories. Honestly, we could have talked for another hour or two. And there was a lot of stuff I couldn't get to. So I encourage all of you to go pick up a copy of his book, Geeking, Grifting, and Gambling Through Las Vegas, 50 Years of Exploits, Ideas, and Tell-All Stories. I also want to encourage you to check out the new book with Mason Malmuth, which is Small Stakes, No Limit Hold'em. Help them give you their money. Available right now on Amazon. This is a brand new book, only out for the last month and should really help those of us who play the game at the lower levels. You know, the game's filled with fish to exploit. So be sure to look out for that. Be sure to look out for more from David at CardPlayer.com and in CardPlayer Magazine in the very near future. You can follow him on Twitter slash X at David, and you can follow us at CardPlayerMedia. Until next time, thanks for listening.